0: Bookstack with Richard Aldous, The Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, David Reynolds, Professor of International History at Cambridge and author of the new book, Mirrors of Greatness, Churchill and the Leaders Who Shaped Him. Uh, David, welcome to Bookstack.
1: Very good to be with you, Richard.
0: Congratulations uh, on the new book. So who or what are these mirrors of greatness? Well,
1: I'm struck by the way that Churchill is generally thought of as a standalone genius. And obviously, in many ways, he, he was a genius and people thought of him as special. Herbert Asquith, who was the prime minister, liberal prime minister before the First World War, said that, uh, you know, he had that mark of genius, which was a kind of jagged streak of lightning through the brain sense of somebody who just does something really different but i also think Churchill was a man who worked hard at everything he didn't uh, he didn't just assume he could wing it and one of the things he worked hard at was just observing the people around him and i think he learned from others and so the mirrors of greatness is in a sense is what does Churchill see in some of his great contemporaries? What marks of greatness does he discern? Or maybe uh, he's interested in them because they are obstacles to his greatness. So that's the idea, really, thinking about Churchill in context rather than just standing alone.
0: Yeah, and it is a, it's a fresh way of thinking about Churchill, who, after all, is, is a character Who's, the, the interest in him seems to be completely undimmed, as you point out. It's the 150th anniversary of his uh, birth this year. He's recognized and adored by millions across the world. Some of them see him as the greatest Britain uh, of all time. Others see him as this deeply controversial uh, character. But the, whatever you think of him, there seems to be no lack of interest and no sign of that interest abating.
1: No, well, I begin the book by saying that uh, in 2024, uh, Winston Churchill, who was born in 1874, is 150 years young because of that sense that he is a perennial. He engages people's interests and emotions, positive and negative, as you say, uh, in our own day, in a way that isn't uh, true of many historical characters. And that's uh, uh, indeed why I am fascinated by him as well. Of course, this is a man, part of it is that he is a very diverse character. So a man who is passionate about politics, very determined to rise to the top himself, ambition to be prime minister from an early age in his, his life. But nevertheless, somebody who is an avid writer, he writes to earn his living, both newspaper articles, trivial stuff, and substantial volumes of biography and history. Uh, he also does other things. He, his way of relaxing is not to sit in a deck chair or something like that. He, he needs something equally absorbing to take his mind away from politics. So in the First World War, when he, as he reaches a real crisis over the Uh, fighting in the Mediterranean. He's blamed for the fiasco of the Gallipoli campaign against the Turks. Churchill learns to paint, and that becomes one of his greatest passions and his relaxation for the rest of his life. He's also a man who uh, is a bricklayer. He has, uh, he's fascinated by something else, very methodical and detailed, laying bricks. And he does this a lot at his house in Chartwell in Kent, his country house. So this is a fascinating person in all sorts of ways.
0: And I mean, one of the things that he himself is fascinated by, as as you point out at the beginning, is the nature of personal greatness itself, both for him, but also he is fascinated by these other characters and even writes books about them.
1: Uh, Churchill is one of those people who believes that history is made by great men and the adjective and the noun are equally important. They have to be great, and frankly, they have to be male. He doesn't really imagine women as shaping history. And also Churchill is somebody who isn't that interested in some of the deeper currents of history. If you think of the way that a lot of historical writing goes these days, looking at the deeper economic structures of a society or the social context, No, for Churchill, this is about human beings, about their actions, their willpower. And of course, the other crucial thing is for Churchill, deeds have to be reinforced by words. You mentioned earlier the way that he is still a a figure of enormous interest to people, partly because he wrote his story as history. He made Uh, what he did into the way that people think about the period, classically in six volumes of Second World War memoirs, uh, which are on many shelves. I expect they're on shelves in the United States as they are in Britain, usually unread. But nevertheless, the titles are ones that have molded people's imagination. The Gathering Storm about the 1930s, the coming of the Second World War, triumph and tragedy, the end of the war, victory, but also the coming of the Cold War, and classically volume two, which is called Their Finest Hour. And there is the British people uh, uh, taken from a speech by Churchill right in the crisis of June 1940, when France has collapsed, but also, of course, that term finest hour taken over by uh, posterity, as I suspect he hoped for and intended, as a statement about him, his finest hour, leading Britain at the moment of its greatest crisis in the 20th century.
0: And of course, one of your earlier books, uh, In Command of History, looked at Churchill writing that history uh, of the Second World War, Churchill wrote uh, a book called Great Contemporaries. It was an early work. In some ways, this book is a kind of a sequel in many ways uh, to that. So this is clearly an area of Churchill that um, inspires your own imagination.
1: Yes, I certainly thought about the book Great Contemporaries when I was working on this. Uh, That book was published in 1937. It was essays about people he'd known uh, in his political career, most of them from around the First World War, before and after. Uh, but what I realized, first, he, he never did anything about the great contemporaries of his heyday, the Second World War era. And secondly, as I put these different essays together, I began to realize this was a different way of telling his life, taking him through from his uh, fascination, almost thraldom to his own father, a father who... Uh, Winston adored, but the father really had no time for his son, who seemed at that stage to be a wastrel and all the rest of it. Right through, going through the early people who uh, had provided, uh, if you like, mentorship to him, figures like David Lloyd George, the charismatic Welsh liberal before the First World War, on to some of the people that he crossed swords with in the Second World War, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Joseph Stalin. Uh, Mussolini and uh, Charles de Gaulle, uh, people who are sometimes enemies, sometimes friends, sometimes frenemies in the case of, of de Gaulle, bit of each. So this was interesting to do. And then towards the end of the book, what I began to think about was some of the people that he would not have wanted or imagined would be in a book about great people. Uh, so, for example, Mohandas Gandhi, the Indian uh, leader, uh, was an absolute anathema to Churchill. And uh, indeed, in many ways, Churchill regarded him almost in the same category as uh, Adolf Hitler in terms of an enemy of everything that the British Empire stood for. But Gandhi, to many people around the world, and now is thought of as a great figure, even if a, a, an eccentric one. Clement Attlee, who was the Labour prime minister who followed Churchill, of whom Churchill said that um, he was an admirable person, but not somebody you'd want to have dinner with, uh, spend a pleasant evening with. But Clee is one of the great peacetime prime ministers of Britain's 20th century. And then the person who's in as well, who I think you can't ignore as an essential great contemporary of, of him and somebody who rose to the occasion is his long-suffering wife, Clementine. Without her help and her advice, I think his career would have been very different. So it's a different way of seeing his whole life, I think. The, the portraits can be looked at in themselves, the individual mirrors, but they add in us a, accumulatively to a, a, a kind of perception of the whole life, which I think is interesting, and I think some of the reviewers have agreed.
0: And the, the fact that it's broadly chronological means it has this feel of, of a kind of a biography too. And also this other element that you're talking about, um, by including figures like Gandhi and Clemmy Churchill and uh, so on, it's making sure that this is a 21st century life without losing that that sense of Churchill as a really a 19th century figure who kind of has such a a, a huge impact in the 20th century.
1: Yes, Attlee, who was an admirer of Churchill and of course um, worked as his deputy prime minister in the Second World War, Attlee was also a a very perceptive and not uncritical admirer. He said that Churchill was a sort of a man of various layers. There was a layer of the 17th century, there was a layer of the 18th century layer of the 19th century and then perhaps a layer of the 20th century and clee was very clear that the socialism that he was talking about the attitude to empire that uh, Ackley embodied in the labor party embodied of, of moving on from the era of empire those were the things that churchill was stuck on abhorred socialism committed to empire and those were signs for Ackley that Churchill wasn't really a man of the 20th century. And I think in the 21st century, when Churchill is a more contentious figure, uh, those are aspects that we need to pick out so that we can get a sense of him, as I suggest at the end of the book, that this is a man who deserves our attention deserves our respect. But in some ways we have to think of him as a historical figure now, rather than a continuing icon, for Britain in the 21st century uh, in a world and in a country that would be unrecognisable to Churchill.
0: Yeah, two of the, uh, the characters that he seems to see as occupying the same uh, rarefied air as, uh, as himself are Lloyd George and, and FDR. What is it about those two characters that he identifies and really sees himself in? Yes,
1: and they're they're very different characters. And that's, again, it's different sorts of mirrors. Uh, For Churchill, Lloyd George is a figure with an instinctive, touchy-feely sense of politics, which Churchill never quite had. There was a sort of intuitiveness. He was often talked of as a kind of uh, Welsh goat, a Welsh wizard, something sort of half human, half animal, something strangely magical about him um he had a much sharper emotional intelligence than churchill did churchill got much of his emotional intelligence and antennae from his wife who was much a better reader of other people than than he often was but lloyd george did bring him into the liberal party did set him on a, a political course and that was something that churchill never forgot fdr is totally different. Churchill admires above all men of courage, and so he's sometimes weak at the knees at meeting somebody who's won the Military Cross or the Victoria Cross in battle. Roosevelt's courage is of a different order. This is the man who was struck down by polio around the age of forty, uh, was not really had no use of his legs uh, from then on, managed to uh, first. Keep the gravity of his condition secret—something you can't imagine in the world of social media today. Developed his torso through a lot of exercises so that he could manipulate himself around. He could, with help, move on a, uh, some crutches or on a cane. Often, you'd if uh, perhaps major public events, he would be on the arm of one of his sons or something like this. And so he he was able to develop a political career. But essentially, this is what we would now call a paraplegic. And so every day he had to be got up, pulled out of bed, dressed, uh, to be frank, stuck on the john and all the rest of it. I mean, this was a humiliating existence. But this is a man who endured those petty humiliations every day and managed to provide to the American people, inspiring leadership in the depths of the Depression and in the travails of the Second World War. And that's why Churchill said of Roosevelt, um, at times after the Second World War, after Roosevelt died in 1945, he would sort of stop a conversation and he would, and he would look away and he'd say, I really loved that man. And there was a sense of emotional admiration and so on. And the other thing, of course, on a more practical level was that Once France collapsed in 1940, Britain needed other allies. And Churchill reached out to the United States, not just because he was half American, because his mother had been American, but because clearly the Great Republic was the only major possible source of support. And Churchill's historical imagination helps to conjure up the notion of the special relationship with the United States. Uh, which is a reading of the long history of Anglo-American relations that is, shall we say, slightly skewed and slightly partial. But this is, you know, Churchill presents this as the natural alliance. FDR works with Churchill, gets on with Churchill, but there's not the same warmth on his side. And also, as far as FDR is concerned, the United States is a country that was born in revolution, committed to liberty and not an imperial power, indeed breaking away from the imperial power of Britain. And from FDR's perspective, the Second World War is the opportunity for the United States to teach the Europeans a lesson, having got the world into two disastrous wars and move the world into uh, what Henry Luce called the American Century. So, Very different, but Churchill's effectiveness as a sort of wordsmith and a shaper of history is such that an unlikely alliance and one that is increasingly one-sided or unbalanced is presented as this special relationship.
0: Yeah, and I I was quite struck that you used that as the title, uh, Special Relationship. You've been working on that since your very first book in the early 1980s. Do you feel that over that period, you've shifted your own view on that relationship or has that remained fairly consistent?
1: Uh, No, I think my view, well, my view has changed, but it's changed as the relationship has changed, really. In the immediate post-war periods, post-Second World War period, clearly the United States is a superpower in a way that Britain is not. Nevertheless, Britain in the 1940s and early 50s is still a country with a significant global presence, uh, bases around the world, bases that are invaluable to the United States in the global Cold War that develops. Uh, Britain still has substantial armed forces, particularly Navy. So it's not unreasonable. And there's, of course, a great deal of, of specialness about the sharing of intelligence, information, military intelligence and things like that. So, Britain did stand out amongst America's other allies, but as time has gone on, the diminution of Britain as a global power and the diversification of America's alliances mean that although there is still significance to the uh, the common language and the ability to deal uh, easily with your colleagues in London, those still matter, but not in the way that has global importance, so I would say that you're quite right that my interests have diversified maybe as the world has changed. Uh, But also I am a product of that particular period. What got me interested in the United States was a year I was able to spend a great opportunity at Harvard, a graduate scholarship for a year, and equally important, the opportunity to travel around the United States in the following summer uh, on a, a Greyhound bus pass. I went from East Coast right across the North, uh, uh, Midwest and uh, Plains and so on to the West Coast, down the West Coast and back across the South. And that gave me a sense of the United States, which you couldn't get otherwise. And it's absolutely fundamental if you want to understand the reality, the diversity of, of, of the United States. This is a country that is the size of a continent but it still is a country. there's a recognizable unity. If you put the the distances onto a map of Europe, it would be going from say the Pyrenees to the Ural Mountains and just think of the variety of countries, languages, cultures, and the inordinate amount of friction that that's there. So that was that sense of America as something special was important uh, and along the way i I bought more into this special relationship more personally, and that my wife is American and uh, she's put up with me for 40 uh, odd years. So as with many historical projects, the individuality of the historian, the subjectivity of the historian, is part of what one picks out and writes about. And that's why history is fun, because you're not going to get the same view from, every other person who's doing this in a way that I somehow crudely imagine that if you were doing some kind of experiments in physics, the idea is that basically it wouldn't matter so much the subjectivity of the uh, investigator, whereas the individuality of the historians is part of what makes history wonderfully rich
0: that generational point is an interesting one as well that uh, both of the candidates uh, for the presidency uh, this year are in fact older than you are um we we know that um that churchill figures largely in the imagination uh, of both men um D- donald trump had uh, the famous uh, epstein bust of uh, churchill in the oval office when he was president One of the first things that President Biden did when he took over was to remove that bus. So, you know, that kind of generational aspect for these two men uh, is just another example of where Churchill continues to permeate in terms of uh, inspiration, but also uh, in some cases, resentment.
1: Yes, I mean, for Biden, his Irish roots are very powerful and the uh irish catholic background looking at a man who was a committed unionist in the sense of the union of the united kingdom northern ireland as part of or ireland as it was in his early days churchill's early days as part of the the united kingdom those are issues that i think at a almost visceral level trouble joe biden so uh Yes, those those kind of things matter, I think, in contemporary politics. And what's interesting, too, is the way that Churchill grabs the imagination of so many people uh, in different ways and gets related to their own personal lives and their personal history.
0: The other aspect of uh, this book that really struck me um, was in, in terms of a different way of thinking about politics, a multifaceted way of thinking about politics. Not least the fact that Churchill, uh, very often you show, is able to, uh, if not admire, but be impressed by um, adversaries. So, you you know, with characters like Stalin and Mussolini and de Gaulle, uh, who are these different levels of adversary, there's a kind of a, a grudging respect and admiration for their skill, for the way in which they play the game.
1: Yes, uh, Churchill is deeply admiring of Mussolini after the First World War because Mussolini is seen as the man who halts the Bolshevik tide that seems to be rolling across Europe immediately in the aftermath of of the First World War. And also Mussolini does have a certain charisma. He's a very striking character uh, physically as well in his youth. It takes Churchill quite a long time to shake that off. But for him, the the crucial point at which Mussolini goes wrong is, as Churchill says, he failed to appreciate the strength and the determination of Britain and the British Empire. So in 1940, Mussolini makes a a fatal mistake in Churchill's view. He doesn't join with the British. He goes with Hitler. And then the rest is a road to to downfall. Um, The man who Churchill, I think, is is the classic frenemy for Churchill is, is Charles de Gaulle. So um, there's a almost a one foot in height difference between Churchill around five foot six, similar height to Stalin, de Gaulle around six, uh, six foot five. Um, so Churchill is always having to look up to de Gaulle physically, but that doesn't stop him from having enormous rows. Um, but what earns Churchill's uh, Grudging respect is the way that de Gaulle fights his corner as a patriot for his country in just the same way that Churchill is doing. And I'm sure they both understood that if the roles had been reversed and that Churchill was somehow holed up in de Gaulle's country needing help and, and so on, he would have done exactly the same. He would have been just as much as a, of a pain. And there's a wonderful sort of epigraph, uh, I use it for the book, um, something that Churchill wrote, he didn't put in his memoirs, but I think it's absolutely true that he said, you know, I, I would not wish to live in a country governed by de Gaulle, but I would not wish to live in a world or with a France where there was no de Gaulle. And that's almost classically sums up the sense of, of great contemporaries, you know, this man is a pain, but... That's part of the wonder of life, particularly at the top, that sense that you are jousting with others who are at the top of their own national pinnacles, and and you are testing yourself against them. And for Churchill, I think that's why he he relished the war. It wasn't simply that it was he had been trained as a soldier. He he understood armies and or thought he did in ways that others didn't but also that he loved the engagement with other leaders and that that was part of the, the challenge of a of War. It was a diplomatic struggle as much as a military struggle.
0: And um, one of the things that uh, de Gaulle in turn seemed to admire about Churchill was this sense of his artistic and historical imagination. That was something that they liked about each other. That, that's something that has been seen to appeal to politicians today as well. Most famously, uh, Boris Johnson has written a book about Churchill and, and when he was prime minister, often referred to Churchill, uh, tried to present himself in Churchillian uh, terms. How successful do you think that was and how useful do you think that is as a, as a template uh, for political leaders today?
1: Well, Churchill had a sense of showmanship. Uh, Johnson obviously did as well Churchill understood the importance of an image Like the cigar stuck in the corner of his mouth Jaw jutting out and so on That uh, this this conveyed a certain British bulldog sense He, However, he also worked at politics In a way that frankly Johnson didn't do It was... Uh, It it comes out now very clearly in the books that have been written about the Brexit era, books like a study by Anthony Seldon of Johnson at number 10. And there you get a very strong sense of how successful Johnson was as a charismatic figure grabbing the public imagination. But he didn't have that same capacity Churchill did to work at what he's doing politically. Churchill put in huge long hours, uh, uh, not just in meetings, but for example, preparing speeches for the House of Commons, something that really doesn't matter now in our days of social media, but was a very powerful way to communicate to the country during the Second World War. And what's often missed is that the importance of those speeches was not just the great one-liners like, you know, fight them on the beaches, fight them on the landing grounds and so on. But the way that Churchill constructed arguments and particularly narratives to help uh, people understand the war and where they were in it, the historian Richard Toyd's been very good, I think, at bringing out that way in which Churchill's speeches were often almost educational, that he explained, okay, this is where we are now in the war. There was the first climactic, the second climactic, and then the fourth climactic. This is the speech in June 1941, where... Hitler invades Russia. And Churchill relates that to what's happened before and why it's significant. So that's uh, the craftsmanship of a historian thinking about contemporary events and analyzing them, conveying them to people and finding also some of those telling phrases which made people remember what he was saying. That degree of craftsmanship, I think, is something that... uh, very few people now would say Boris Johnson had.
0: And finally, David, you, you quote uh, Churchill, who could often be um, very morose, uh, his famous black dog depressions, as, as he described them himself. Uh, but he said towards the end of his life that he'd worked very hard and I've achieved a great deal in the end to achieve nothing. There's this continuing huge interest in Churchill. What ultimately do you think is his achievement?
1: I think that it was historically hugely significant. Uh, Britain did not succumb in 1940, that uh, it did not collapse, it did not go the way of France. As a result, there was a part of the European landmass that was outside Hitler's control. The islands, the British Isles, were essential for uh, the US forces in the reoccupation of and the liberation of the continent i think if britain had succumbed uh franklin roosevelt would have had to turn to hemisphere defense would have basically had to say okay europe is lost we will concentrate on defending the west hemisphere instead he put his money on britain and churchill's leadership was significant in the sense that i think it's not simplistic, it's not a simplistic sense that everybody else would have surrendered, but that Churchill did have this uh, capacity to reach out to people, to give them inspiration. He was also very successful in working directly with the generals, the military, naval and air figures, uh, in a way that hadn't really been done by a prime minister before, really getting engaged that sometimes was counterproductive, but his leadership in that sort of wartime strategy was tremendously important. Um, So I think Britain mattered in 1940. Britain's defiance didn't mean that uh, victory was assured, that to a large extent was dependent on the United States and then the Soviet Union. But British defiance was an essential part of that story. The danger, in a way, as far as Britain's concerned, I think, has been the tendency to say, well, we were so special then that somehow the world still owes us respect and approval now in a different kind of uh, era and different kind of global situation. So I think that there's a danger of putting Churchill up on a wall as a sort of two-dimensional icon. One of the points of this book and of earlier books was really to say, This is a three-dimensional, very diverse human being. But my sense of the Churchill heritage is summed up towards the end of the book. I I picked out a phrase he used quite a few times when he was getting fed up with the generals. uh, We landed on, say, the coast of North Africa. We'd landed on the coast of Italy. But then they couldn't seem to get off the beaches. They couldn't move. And he said, you know, I intended these landings not to be a sofa, but a springboard, not a sofa, but a springboard. And I think that is a good uh, guide to how I think we should think of Churchill, the Churchillian heritage now. It's not a sofa in the sense, oh, we sit back and say, we're still so great. But we say, okay, Churchill rose to the occasion in 1940. How do we, rise to the occasion now and in fact i did a school's talk the other evening which ended i hadn't intended it but it ended with that in a sense of saying okay you are the 21st century generation you will be shaping this country in the you know, the, the next decades not me what are you going to do how are you going to treat the past as a springboard for the future and i think that's a, a useful guide for many countries too do you, u.s has a great heritage a great history it needs to think creatively now about how it's handling the, the very fractured and polarized politics of the time and the society. And that requires people to rise to the occasion. And I think that's what Churchill, in a sense, is, is offering us an example of. In his day, somebody who treated the past as a springboard and not a sofa.
0: So the book is Mirrors of Greatness, Churchill and the Leaders Who Shaped Him. It's written by my guest, David Reynolds, and published by Basic Books. Uh, But for now, David, always such a pleasure. Congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack.
1: Thanks, Richard. It was a real pleasure for me too.
0: So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. And this is me, Richard Aldus, saying have a great week.